Hopefully you can hear us. Welcome back to the Dark Horse Podcast live stream number 166 Q&A segment. We uh, had a technical issue. Hopefully it is cured. We will find out here momentarily if you are able to hear us or if we just seem to be silent talking but not hearable heads on the screen. Yeah. Our producer has, uh, in a fit of pique, gone to a different hemisphere. Yes. Probably not to get away from us, but it's very hard to be certain. Hard to know. Hard very to know. hard to be certain. Yeah. Uh, All right. We are audible. Okay. So Excellent. Uh, let so us get on with the, uh, the Q&A. Let us get on with it. Indeed. Uh, what I wanted to say, what I was saying at the point that we discovered that no one could hear us, uh, was I wanted to say what I said at the bottom of the last hour, uh, which is that we've got a bunch of new stuff on our store at, um, gosh, it must be darkhorsestore.org, <laughs> I'm thinking. Uh, a lot of pins and uh, other other needles. goodies. No needles. Nope, we do not sell needles, so no. I don't know why you said that. Pins and noodles. I know why you said it, but I don't know why you said it. Oh, all right. Well, yeah. I don't know. I was just going with it. Pins and noodles. Yes, we pins also don't noodles. sell noodles, but if you have any ideas for noodles, uh, well, think pool noodles. Dark Horse branded pool noodles. Uh, that'd be a thing. Pool. Absolutely. Why not? Pins and noodles. Sure. Mm -hmm. All right. Okay. Uh, we don't have those. <laughs> we do have <laughs> pens. Not pens. Uh, we should have pens and noodles. Pens and noodles. Yeah. That'd be good. Yeah, yeah, we worked our way there. Found it. Found it. Okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So this is the first time we've done a Q&A in three weeks. So we've got um, a few questions from the Discord. Uh, let's do two of them. Uh, they sent us three, but I'm just going to pick two of them here. And, and then before we get into the questions from you guys, uh, who are not on the Discord server, uh, this Discord, if you're on our Patreons, you get access to Discord and every week they vote on their the question that they most want us to start off our Q&A with. Uh, so we're going to start there as we always do, but then you can ask questions at darkhorsesubmissions.com. So, from the Discord, question one of two. In a, prior in a prior podcast, you hypothesized that if spike shedding is real, spike might be a prion. Dr. Peter McCullough recently authored a paper exploring just that, paper I have not seen, and suggested the resulting amyloidosis plays a role in symptoms. Dr. Oh boy. Ethericia Pretorius and many others have also published extensive evidence for this model. If Spike is a prion, how much do we need to rethink? Boy, I don't, I'm, I'm out of my depth here. I don't know. Uh, I would say, and I haven't read this. Work. I would say a lot. And for those of you who are not clear on why this would be a fundamentally different thing, uh, a prion is a transmissible folding in the case of prion diseases, a transmissible misfolding of proteins. Um, the most famous example would be mad cow disease. Um, but in any case, the reason that it would matter and fundamentally alter our understanding is that if spike in and of itself is a prion or a contagious folding, then dosage is potentially much less relevant. A tiny number of molecules could cause a significant pathology by transmitting mm. a folding error into a system. And so that's why I said mm -hmm. um, that if shedding was a real issue, it would potentially imply a prion disease because the amount of uh, spike 
it's no, not dosage dependent. The, the amount of um, shedding of anything from the vaccine should be tiny compared to what the person who was injected had been exposed to. And therefore, if it was a significant pathology, it, su it suggests some kind of an amplifier. Yes. Good. All whether right. that's whether that's spike or or uh, um, the mRNA inducing mm -hmm. something with a misfolding. Right. Okay. Welcome. Helping us welcome spring soon. Here is Fairfax. Our he's, epic. He's, he seems to dig spring. Our epic tabby. Yeah. Yeah. He does as he should. Okay. Multi-part question. This as the second question from the Discord this week. What is to be done with modern medicine? Aside from long-standing pharma capture, we also have rapidly accelerating medical lysenkoism from the race and gender crowd. So is it a lost cause like the humanities? After decades of malignment, is naturopathy the way? So naturopathy isn't the only alternative uh, to so-called, you, know, um, you know, modern Western medicine uh, is broadly referred to often as allopathy, allopathic medicine. And there are lots of other kinds of, of pathies, just not what they say, but naturopathy being one, osteopathy being another, but also non-Western approaches um, being many others. And um, of course, there are varying like, healing modalities that don't necessarily constitute entire you know, medical practices, but uh, you know, somatic body work, somatic work, uh, on on the body, which doesn't address things necessarily like a broken bone, um, but uh, can be more effective in dealing with um, chronic or soft tissue damage than um, a lot of what allopathic medicine has to offer uh, are, are also <clears throat> extraordinary. I have worked with um, osteopaths and naturopaths, have found um, much to recommend in both. Uh, for me, um, and it may just be because of the particular um, um, person that I found. There's, uh, I, I, I find um, osteopathy to be an extraordinary alternative to allopathy uh, in terms of the, uh, the combining of a very analytical, scientific approach with a um, evaluating of the human senses and specifically touch, you know, hands, long periods of hands on the body in order to assess where there is, where there are things that need to be aligned, fixed, treated, uh, is, seems to me to be a far better, a far better healing modality than uh, listening to someone tell you what they think they're feeling for a few minutes and then prescribing a drug or a treatment as a result, which is the typical model in allopathy at this point. Yeah. I, osteopathy is fascinating. Um, it seems to trade on the idea that there is a neglected system of calibrations through the body that can be activated and recalibrated. Um, mm -hmm. and it's amazing how many things it seems to be connected to. Yeah. As for what to do with, um, medicine. with medicine generally, I think there are really two things that have to happen. One is there needs to be a triage phase in which we throw out all of the things that misled us, right? The drug happy, yeah. pharma captured, 
version of medicine has been a disaster and it's created a tremendous amount of iatrogenic harm. Um, and, you know, the fact is the people who are administering this stuff did go to medical school, right? They do know where the major organs are located and basically mm -hmm. what they do. And they have studied whatever skills, you know, you, you can't very well have your gardener, you know, sub in for your surgeon, right? Your surgeon knows how to do surgery, but they may have been induced into believing that uh, treatments which are more harmful than they are valuable are the way to go. So anyway, we need a reboot in which we look skeptically at everything that we have come to believe recently in medicine mm -hmm. and reevaluate it with a proper understanding of Chesterton's fence and the precautionary principle, those being two sides of the same coin, proper appreciation for uh, unintended consequences, and then we need a longer-term fix for the uh, non-evolutionary, in some cases the anti-evolutionary approach of the training that doctors get. Mm -hmm. Right. So we're talking about a couple of generations down the road for a system that's really good, but it could be a hell of a lot better tomorrow if we simply, you know, throw the money changers out of the medical school um, and get back to basics. Yeah. I think there's also um, my my finite experience uh, with the non-allopathic medical uh, systems, osteopathy. Uh, naturopathy, acupuncture, various um, somatic um, treatments. One of the things that I think they have in common that very much allopathic medicine doesn't is a humility, is an understanding that they don't know everything. And it is, of course, a stereotype, but I think very often an apt stereotype uh, that allopathic medicine as a system and allopathic medical providers as individual doctors uh, often have uh, a, a, an ego about them uh, that uh, uh, that suggests that we've got it all figured out. We got this. We know you don't have to worry. You, the patient, don't have to worry about this. We know you don't need to know. And uh, don't worry about it. We, we have this handled. And one of, you know, I, I think I've said this before on here, but even, you know, obviously we didn't go to medical school, but um, I, you did a little bit of this, but I did a lot of teaching of um, pre-meds, um, both when we were in grad school and to some degree when we were um, professors, um, because I taught comparative anatomy labs. And, um, you know, I never did humans, but we did sharks and cats and salamanders and such. And, you know, a lot of pre-meds go through comparative anatomy labs. And I remember when I first started teaching comparative anatomy labs in the early mid nineties, uh, there was no focus at all on fascia. Like you knew, you know, it was there. Uh, and you know, when, when you were dissecting cats, sorry, don't listen. Um, uh, and like, okay, you have to cut through the fascia to get to the skeletal muscle, and it's the skeletal muscle that we're going to be paying attention to here. Um, but it was just sort of like, oh, it's just a sheath. It's just like undifferentiated muscle. Yeah, who cares, right? And to some degree, that was an artifact of like, well, you're dealing with with cadavers in that case, feline cadavers, and uh, and it, it there was nothing much to be learned at the level of what we were doing. But it also just there was a sense of like, ah, eh, it doesn't really matter. And in the gosh, I guess almost 30 years that have elapsed since then, 
the focus on fascia that I have seen uh, emerge in many of these other healing traditions uh, is extraordinary. And it's really completely clear that um, especially, I, I, think, I think across a lot of uh, problems, but especially as you age, uh, the idea that keeping your fascia elastic and, um, you know, pliable over your skeletal muscle but and um, elastic relative to itself is one of the absolute keys to flexibility and to keeping your mobility as as you get older and that is something that as far as i can tell allopathic medicine was paying no attention to and it's not like we're talking about the dark ages right this this was this was not very long ago so what else don't we know you know what else is being ignored or overlooked or just not you know just Ah, yeah, we know that's there, but we're certain that's not important or interesting. Uh, I think that the non-allopathic traditions are much more likely to say, yep, this is what we think now, and that could change, which is frankly what you do in science. And if Western medicine, if allopathic medicine isn't doing that, then that tells you something right away about them having a non-scientific approach. So in some sense, you're saying that the anti-fascists had too much power in medicine and that it is uh, only with time that we have recognized their error, which I would concur. Mm -hmm. um, sorry. It had to be said. You know it had to be said. Yes, but you're not sorry. No, I'm not sorry. No. But I, that needed to also be said, that I was sorry, even though I wasn't. Um, I would also just point out, though, like the uh, the elephant in the room mm -hmm. is... It's not cat, dude. No, no, I'm speaking metaphorically. Oh, okay, okay. Um, the elephant in the room is uh, homeopathy, which mm. um, I think is about to have its day because um, it does very little harm. And <laughs> to the degree that medicine has gone bonkers and yeah. does all kinds yeah. of things that do harm, right? If first do no harm, <laughs> it's actually... do no harm, we'd be better <laughs> off with a lot of home homeopathic uh, yeah. doctors or whatever they are. Yeah. Um, I don't, I don't know if there, I don't know if there are practitioners dedicated to homeopathy, but they're not like there. There are a lot of people in the sort of alternative space who include it in their suite of treatments. Treatments, right? Yeah. Um, yes. So anyway, this has all been a roundabout way of pointing out that if you uh, have a methodology that has nothing to it because you've diluted things down to the point where they don't actually exist in your in your sample than that's better than poisoning people right it's better than poisoning people that our medicine has gone so far off the rails that not poisoning people uh may indeed be a a medical insight at this point wow <laughs> yeah that is that is kind of where we are okay so for this next one fairfax is going to read the question all right i'm looking forward to seeing that no i think he's falling asleep no okay uh let me just refresh this cool this again from darkhorsemissions.com. This is where we're reading questions from now. Question for Brett. I live in Florida and I'm glad to see you as a member of the group investigating the COVID vaccine harm and malfeasance. Question mark. Is there anything you can share on progress or your outlook on whether the investigation will bear fruit? Is this a legitimate endeavor in your view? Um, I'm thinking about whether or not I am constrained. In this case, I don't think I am constrained because um, th there are various sunshine laws, right? And the idea is there is a desire, and I think an understandable one, not to have um, members of the committee talking about committee business where the public doesn't have access. 
But um, in this case, we are talking where the public has full access. Also, there's only one member of the committee here. Right. I'm not, yeah, I'm not, I'm, to be honest with you, I'm a little vague, but I think we're in safe territory here for a couple different reasons. Mm -hmm. I do think that the committee is a legitimate exercise. What we saw in our last meeting is that there is. Which was this last week. Yep. There's a diversity of opinion on the committee and that the interaction between people of different perspectives is welcomed. Uh, So anyway, what I have the sense is that this is not a PR exercise. This is an actual uh, attempt to correct for the distortions in the medical wisdom that have come from from corruption and from capture and from the emergent narrative control that we've seen throughout the pandemic. And I'm very hopeful about it. Um, so anyway, yeah, it's, uh, I like everybody on the committee and I think, I think our meeting last week was productive and I hope they continue. Can you say anything more specific to the question of whether, um, you think it will bear fruit? Well, there's a question, you know, there's a couple different questions. What, what tree are you? Like, yeah. what kind of fruit? <laughs> the purpose is to provide Floridians with an improved model of the disease and the potential remedies so that policy can be better made in Florida. Will it mm-hmm. produce fruit in, at that level? Almost certainly. Can Florida model how this should properly be done? Uh, then, uh, yes, of course it can. And to the extent that will anyone we listen? can do that, well, I think people will listen. And, um, you know, there is this idea, it is a fraught idea, but the founders of the United States believed in a laboratory of the state. In fact, I believe Jefferson may have used that phrase. But the laboratory of the states allows for different states to have different policy and for us to discover what actually works. And so to the extent that we have had a bunch of states marching in lockstep, that's a problem. Mm -hmm. To the extent that we have a small number of examples of nations that have behaved differently and had different consequences, that's useful. And we could do the same thing within the United States and Florida is leading the way. So anyway, yeah, I think, I think the potential upside is, is huge and uh, I'm looking forward to seeing how it works. Awesome. Okay, well, I've now moved out of the way so that everyone could see Maddie, but she has tucked her head down. Yes, she has. Very sleepy dog. All right, next question. Sorry. Rolling things on carpet. It's not so easy. Hypothesis. A contrarian position works when government only acts in corrupt ways. COVID, trans, DEI, Twitter files, Fauci emails, Ukraine, ellipses, dot, dot, dot. Um, I agree with this to a point. Contrarianism will get you to skepticism and to the extent that your government is captured or worse, right, is in that third tier. Contrarianism doesn't get you to skepticism. Contrarianism gets you to a reflexive skepticism of officialdom. I don't... mm, I mean, you have used these words differently. I mean, maybe, maybe I, he's going to, you're going to have him typing things on my computer. If you no, do I would that. never do that. Um, I, I don't, I don't agree with this framing. 
I think. Well, I um, think you know, reflexive agreement and reflexive disagreement are both um, are both static positions, and skepticism is w- with regard to if the authority says X, I always do Y, and Y has opposite valence in the case of um, you know faith versus contrarianism, um, but skepticism says. I don't take what the authority said as a uh, as a directive in terms of what I believe. Well, I think we're tangled up in two things. You and I are sensitive to having been accused of contrarianism, which is not how we ended up where we are, mm-hmm. right? So we don't like the label. On the other hand, it is interesting that I think without exception, or certainly nearly without exception, uh, the inverse of what the CDC recommended that you should do is what you should have done. They wanted to lock you indoors, you should have gone outdoors. Right, and so that's, you know, that's consistent with, you know, this the hypothesis that being a contrarian will work if you have full corruption of a system. Right. But that is not, but but it's not the same thing as, you know, it's easier. Like, if, if you've got a fully corrupt system, just as if you've had, if if you have a fully non-corrupt system, simply saying, "Yep, I'm I'm going with that thing." Awesome, that works. It's easy. You don't have to spend that much bandwidth on it. You can devote your energy to something else. Similarly, if you know what, it's just corrupt. I'm just going to always do the opposite. It's simpler. You don't have to think about it too much. Um, but it's obviously always risky because you know what if the corruption isn't as perfect as you thought, or what if the you know perfection isn't as perfect as you thought. Right. right. So so. You know, what it, I was going to argue... They're, they're very different ways of going about assessing the world. Yeah, I'm not defending in any way contrarianism as a mode. I'm just saying, in this case, you do have completely captured and beyond governmental failure, and doing the inverse would actually have worked, right? But the problem is, how do you know where you are with right. respect to how pathological your, your governmental system is? Right. You don't, so you have to do the logic well, but... Um, you know, from the point of view of this person's proposal in a completely captured system where something has gamed the apparatus and is getting it to work against the public's interest in the interest of something private, then um, it, you know, it's the family dog with rabies, right? Your instinct with your family dog is to snuggle with it and pet it. Your instinct when your family dog has rabies is uh, to kill it. Right. Mm-hmm. And they're inverse. Mm-hmm. So, uh, again, I also um, I resent the argument that we got where we ended up through contrarianism because that's not what happened. But from the point of view of the question askers perspective, um, I think they're formally right in this case. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't I wasn't trying to respond to, to how we got where we were going. I just I don't like I don't like to ever see the conflation. Mm-hmm. of um contrarianism with skepticism and i think i think that this works hypothesis a contrarian position works when government only acts in corrupt ways uh but for the fact that things change right like static positions work in static universes and um a a strategy that is static can only continue to be an appropriate strategy for as long as the thing that it's the environment that it's acting on has not changed and uh you know is even asking okay well it's corrupt well what if you've got two different 
corrupt arms of a thing that are vying with one another and they're going to manifest in slightly different ways. You, you know, the, I cannot imagine being confident walking around the world going, you know what, I've just decided that I don't trust anything that comes out of that and that is my solution. No, I'm not listening to you. I don't care what they're saying now. I just never listen to X any more than I can imagine responding and going like, oh, I just, I always listen to that guy because I know that, you know, that's the authority that I've learned to trust and I'm always going to trust him. Well, we, we have done this um, properly. The distinction we have drawn is between skepticism and cynicism and contrarianism is cynical, right? It is yes. reflexive and therefore has no capacity for nuance. And, you know, well, what if you're, you know, reflexively skeptical. Good. That's yeah. the way science works, yeah. right? Um, reflexively skeptical. Because because it requires assessment. Yes, because because the cynicism thing... and faith don't require assessment. Yes. Um, reflexively analytical is not. <laughs> you know, it's not a simple reflex. The point is, it's a reflex to do something with nuance and capacity right. and all of that. So anyway, yeah. well, in the end, where we arrive yeah. is the same place that um, contrarianism will work you know, in the case that you have an upside down something, but it is never a substitute for proper skepticism, um, carefully applied. Good. Is sexual selection a mechanism for defining the product, the productive boundaries between conservatism and progressivism? Wait, 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 wait. Try it again. That wasn't the end of the set, that oh. question either. You want me to start over? Or? Yeah. Okay. Is sexual selection a mechanism for defining the productive boundaries between conservatism and progressivism? At the tropics, sexual selection must be more conservative because more random mutation, UV light, therefore more species. Uh, no, this is a this is a complex puzzle, which uh, at some point I, I'm going to return to carefully. But the idea of well, so you, in this case, unlike the homosexual evolution of homosexuality case where you keep on promising it and uh, it's not actually out there in the world, you do have a chapter of your dissertation on on the question with regard to um, the tropics and sexual selection, or maybe even two chapters. I had two, and the department, uh, a confederate, was one. forced uh, onto my committee, who then forced me to re remove, I was allowed uh, to choose. The sexual selection piece is gone? Uh, yes, it is cryptically alluded to in the other chapter. But um, but anyway, I had a chapter on exactly this topic. Um, I certainly do have a chapter on the latitudinal diversity gradient and other diversity gradients and what causes them, um, which I think is robust. Suffice it to say, uh, the idea of greater mutation rate isn't where this goes. This is a lot more about selection and adaptation and um, non-obvious patterns of selectivity by mates, especially females. But that um, the assumption that it's about more light, more mutation, right? That is that exists in the literature. That that has that has been proposed by people. It's, yep. it's not that that came out of. It's not that that's a terrible idea that uh, has you know long since been uh, debunked. I think you know you have debunked. No, I think uh, it is an idea that has been proposed multiple times. Whether it's light or whether it's temperature, um, productivity as a result of of the higher um, both right. light and, and it just and doesn't heat. it just doesn't stand up. Yeah. Um, 
but but to the first part of the question um defining the productive boundaries around conservatism versus progressivism so this is like sexual selection i believe a i believe you have a couple of driving forces that look similar and are um actually they are each other's inverse. One is in space and one is in time. Um, but I'm not gonna explore them here. It has to be done carefully with the evidence. Uh, so suffice it to say, they are about delineating boundaries. Boundaries of what is the question? Mm -hmm. And it's not progressivism versus conservatism. But I mean, if if you take the uh, the human political edge off of those words and say. There's a tension between keeping what works and um, and engaging with variability such that you can withstand the changes that are to come or that have already come since you, the parents, existed. Then there, like that, that begins to be an accurate description of some of the tensions that exist. Sort of, uh, you know. I would basically say you've got a system which is inherently. Um, backward looking but that selection is much better at recognizing patterns in that backward fashion so that they apply to th it is as if selection looks forward even though we know that it cannot yes good thoughts on this Oh boy, I don't know. Um, thoughts on this oldest living thing and the mutations it allegedly uses to protect itself you seen this mm -mm. large fungus in Michigan weighs 440 tons? Well, this is not a new result. I, I mean, I'm certainly aware of the critter, but is there something new about how it functions? This is from, this is a article on Gizmodo from uh, 2018. Mm, I'd have to remind myself if I ever knew. Yeah. Um, yeah, I remember, I remember this vaguely, but I don't know anything about it now. I don't know if there's anything new about it. Um, maybe, the militant moderate writes, Sam Harris would respond favorably to a steel man off. An initial conversation to simply nail down what each of you thinks, then another conversation a week or two later. I mean, I've offered the man a bunch of different mechanisms to deal with this. I don't think he could possibly have a structural objection because the structure is open. Uh, I think the problem is he is beginning to detect just how his heuristic led him into terrible danger, and he's having trouble, you know. If you're Sam Harris and you believe all the things that he keeps saying about the importance of the institutions and the discovery that the institutions have completely collapsed, that they are effectively like the rabid dog, um, is a terrifying realization. And I don't disagree that it's terrifying. Mm -hmm. But I've been trying to tell people for decades that that's where we were headed, and so this isn't new to me. I'm less terrified because I've gone through the horrifying thought experiment of what are we going to do if these institutions stop working, right? So... I think he's just getting used to the idea. And um, anyway. You see some evidence that he's getting used to the idea? I think the level at which he has ended up wrong over the pandemic is 
going to force him to realize that some fundamental assumption has to be off. And he's going to discover that the fundamental assumption is that there's such a thing as experts and that they work in institutions and that those institutions are, uh, you know, more right than they are wrong. And the answer is no, they're more Pfizer than they are reality and Pfizer isn't your friend, you know? Yeah. It seems like a lot of assumptions though. It's going to be, it's a big house of cards. The man's got himself a house of cards built on sand, and uh, it ain't going to last, especially with the coming storm. So, you know, I don't know how many analogies we have to throw in there to wake him up, but it, Sam, it's time. Yeah. Okay. In the last Q&A, oh, boy, that was three weeks ago. I don't remember. Uh, this, this person is referring to a question from the last Q&A. In the last Q&A, I meant that characteristic of religious and psychedelic experience is the dissolution of the boundary between self and other. To what extent and in what circumstances is selfhood or loss of it adaptive? Oh. Well, I don't remember the question, but I can certainly proceed from that last bit. Uh, all right. There is a question about levels of selection. You will find, in my opinion, a low-quality version of that discussion under the heading of group selection. A high-quality version of that would involve a recognition of lineage selection. And the superior thing about a lineage-level analysis is that lineages are legitimate targets of selection and therefore appropriate loci for adaptation. So that may sound unnecessarily complex, but the upshot is our, you, an individual, are a lineage until you have offspring or other descendants, at which point you plus all of your descendants are a lineage, right? The focus that we critters have on us as individuals has a lot to do with the fact that our ability to behave in ways that favor our lineage going forward is actually historically very constrained. You have as much evolutionary interest in the fate of your genes a thousand generations from now as you do the fate of your genes in the next generation, but you have essentially no control over their fate a thousand generations from now, and you have a lot of control over the next generation. So we have a vision of the world that is um, biased in the direction of individuality, not because that's evolutionarily more important, but because it's more tractable. So what I would say is some part of you knows this. Some part of you understands that you are simultaneously an individual that has a consciousness and that you can affect things, you know, near to you in space and time. And some part of you understands that that's folly. It's a very temporary kind of effect. And that what really matters is the much longer term stuff, which you don't know how to think about. When you are participating in a thousand year old tradition, it has built into it mechanisms that the group selectionists and others might call pro-social that is, things that cause you to think more in terms of your lineage's well-being. And when you take entheogens, you may also tap into mm. 
a kind of recognition. You know, there is this ego death phenomenon, which Heather uh, alluded to. And the mm -hmm. fact is, ego death, the experience of it, is something like being okay with your temporary nature, with your finite nature, right? And it, to the extent that I'm in a position to even say what it's like, it does feel like a tapping into the greater, more global calculus rather than the narrow, individually focused calculus, which is so effective but distorted. Um, so I do think that there is an analogy between those two things, right? A ancient tradition can house and transmit between generations a more global view and likewise entheogens that move the boundary of consciousness may allow you to tap into a sort of deeper sense of where you are in the universe and that may sound vague or it may actually be a correct description but i i at least believe it i feel like there's a lot more to say there i can't quite figure out what to say um to what degree do you think um there might be analogy between religious and psychedelic experience so that's not the main thrust of this question. And I think, you, you know, you and I don't have religious experience to, to compare to, yeah. right, uh, to build on. But I think it's interesting that in, this isn't the first time I've seen those two that have invoked as, as at least analogous and maybe sharing something even more than that, sort of accessing a, uh, a mental state uh, that, sheds, that sheds light uh and you know sometimes it's described as actually a, a literal shedding of light um onto parts of yourself your individuality your personhood that you didn't otherwise have access to well look i think i think entheogens at a literal level move the threshold of consciousness so that there's stuff taking place in your mind that you don't have conscious access to normally, and that threshold gets moved, so suddenly you're conscious of a lot of processes that you wouldn't ordinarily be able to tap into. Like you can you can now reflect inward on your own, on on into a deeper part of your brain. Yeah, into mm -hmm. parts of your brain that have a a utility, but not or that are usually your consciousness is usually shielded from them. Mm -hmm. And there are two ways that that could, and in fact, I bet you both of these are right. Um, there are two ways in which you might find a religiosity over that boundary. One of which is that your culture, no matter what culture it is, has a lot of religiosity in its foundation. Even if you're in a secular society, it was built from a religious society. Mm -hmm. And so it might be that there's a lot of stuff in the inner workings of your culture, which you don't recognize as religious in nature, but uh, that when you move yep. that boundary, you suddenly tap into them. And these mm -hmm. are things that, you know, would have come to you uh, developmentally just by picking up the culture around you. Mm -hmm. But the other way is that, you know, shamanism often has a hallucinogenic mode. And... That is to say, in order to bring things into a religious framework within a culture, somebody, and maybe more than one somebody, is encouraged to step into that 
nebulous, usually outside of consciousness layer. And, you know, I've always thought that they are allowed to sort of report back what they see. And the nice thing about having that be a shaman is that you can take it seriously if it sounds right and you can ignore it if it sounds like garbage. And, you know, so there's a facultative relationship. The shaman is understood to be otherworldly. And, um, you know, I, you know, look, the mm -hmm. experience of hallucinogens yep. is very insightful, but at least with many hallucinogens, a lot of it does not stand up to the clear headedness of the following day. Right. <laughs> yeah. So the point is it's like a high mutation mm -hmm. rate way of thinking mm -hmm. that increases the amount of garbage and increases the sensitivity to subtle things that you might otherwise throw out because they were swirling and garbagey stuff. Mm -hmm. um, having a shaman or who just can, swirling. Yeah, just swirling. Mm -hmm. um, having a shaman who can go there on behalf of a population and then report back uh, is kind of the best of both worlds, right? Mm -hmm. You don't want the captain on hallucinogens, right? You want uh, somebody who can safely be sidelined when need be and then listen to when need be mm -hmm. that's a that's a, a much more ideal structure but anyway yes i do think there's a, a connection between religiosity and the somewhat subconscious or outside of conscious state that is accessed through entheogens awesome we have an extremely cuddly cat here today oh yeah, yeah. james Lindsay has been doing is right. that just in my own head? Yes. I just heard buzzing when I started speaking like it was in the mic. That didn't happen. It was all that talk about entheogens. <laughs> <laughs> I I didn't hear it. Okay. So if it was in your own head, then the insulative layer on the outside kept it from getting out. Yeah, the duramater kept it. Okay. Right. James Lindsay. Oh, man. Yeah, I got it again. Maybe it's just James Lindsay. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Jim, if you're watching. <laughs> How are you doing, man? James Lindsay has been doing a lot of good work lately on the rot in education. It'd be interesting to see you talk to him about that on a guest episode. It's a good idea. Yeah. Yeah. Um, my wife, one thing about having a really cuddly cat in the spring is that there's fur all Everywhere. over the place. Yeah. So much fur. Well, my wife is pregnant with our first, and our obstetrician recommended the Tdap vaccine in the third trimester. Do you have thoughts on the risk-benefit ratio for this? Love the show. Thank you. Well, I don't remember. So our boys are going to be next month, 19 and 17. And I do not remember having recommended any vaccines during pregnancy. Yeah. I am certain that I would have been shocked at the suggestion that I receive vaccines during pregnancy. And obviously the vaccine schedule for um, for newborns and for kids is extensive and um there's been a lot of discussion and there's a lot more discussion to be had about how much of that um makes sense in the way it's currently configured but um during pregnancy i would want to know a lot about why that change happened um under what kinds of conditions that change happened and what the justification for it is uh, i would be um, my default position would be no vaccines during pregnancy. No, thank you. Yeah, it's hard to imagine that they could possibly know enough to be certain that this was uh, more beneficial than it is risky. 
Um, so yeah. anyway, I'd be curious what the thinking was, but I, yeah. let's just say um, complex systems within complex systems being what they are, everybody's reflexive position ought to be extreme caution intervening in a system that works very well. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I, I would be interested to know more about this particular recommendation, uh, if you can point us to something. Yeah. I've heard that some fungi have thousands of sexes. If sex is the result of gamete size and function, what does that tell us about their gametes? So I don't remember much about what fungi are doing. They don't have, um, they have thousands of mating types. And I don't remember, I don't think it's about a bunch of different gamete sizes and, and, yeah. and, and mobilities. So, you know, the, the anisogamy that plants and animals have, uh, two gametes, two gamete types, uh, one of which has the cytoplasm and as a result of being large compared to the other one, then it tends to be sessile. It's the egg. Uh, and one of them being stripped down has none of the cellular machinery except for basically um, a haploid complement of um, of the genome and um, and basically a motor, a tail. Um, and that one's, that one's motile. Um, fungi don't have gamete types that way. I yeah. don't think, but I don't remember. Like and they're even, they're even weirder because they're, they're so weird. Hello. Um, if I recall correctly, and you know, it's a big kingdom. It's, so it's, there's, a, there's lot of, a lot of variation too. There's a lot of like variation. Some of them but, are only breeding asexually. Some of them are doing both asexual and sexual. Well, the thing that I recall most profoundly was an inversion of whether the single belled stage was uh, diploid or haploid. But that, isn't that? I think I recall a haploid organism. Yes. Uh, with a single cell diploid stage or something but like that. I feel this. like some plants may even do that too. Maybe not. I don't think so. Okay. But anyway, um, I think the problem is A, you've got a yeah, radically. Like the fruiting body is haploid, maybe? It, it's a very different. It's so thing. weird. But yeah. You have remember. a kingdom that is so radically different from the other multicellular kingdoms. And yet, interestingly, more closely related to animals than either are to plants. But that fact um, causes us to do a mismapping, right? I'm not sure, mm. you know, mating types and sexes is not a particularly close analogy, right? Um, the yeah. whole life cycle is so distinct that I would just be very cautious about being too aggressive about mapping what we know from animals and plants onto the fungus. Yeah, I would, I would love to read, you know, even as much as a book, but I would prefer it if it was like a 20 to 30 page scholarly paper describing what's going on with um, reproduction in fungi. Um, but I don't know if it's possible even because there's so many different things happening. Man, he is on the move today. Mm -hmm. Um Regarding using their own tools against them, I think we need to start sex affirming. However you decorate, you are a beautiful and unique male or female, perfect just as you are. Well, thank you. I like this. Yes, you are. <laughs> um, no, this is, this, is, this is good. I like this uh, because we're being told gender affirming and... Uh, Life affirming. How does that 
it is used as a euphemism for, uh, for affirming somebody's psychological sense of being in the wrong body. Okay, maybe. I, I've, I haven't heard that. Um, but gender affirming, uh, which is the common thing, uh, versus sex affirming. Yeah. You know what? Uh, you know, there are people, there are increasingly I'm running into, you know, a lot of us are just getting fed up, like pushed, push, push the limit. Like, you know what? Yes, I am less tolerant of the bullshit than I was because it wasn't as bullshitty before as it is now. And it's just pushing too hard against too many uh, hard won um, rights and laws and stop. Uh, but increasingly I am running into people saying, you know, don't just don't talk about gender at all. Gender isn't real. Gender and sex are the same thing. And you know, I remember being in teaching a class, an animal behavior class. This has got to be, gosh, 15, minutes, 15 years ago, maybe. Um, and someone, some student, some female student, some you know, lovely young woman uh, said something about, well, but isn't gender such and such? Because, you know, I did a lot, I spent a lot of time in those classes, as you know, talking about evolution of sex, evolution of sex roles, sexual selection, mating systems. That was a big chunk of what we did. And, uh, oh, but isn't gender? And I said, sex, gender is the same thing. I don't care. And she kind of got shocked. And I came back to her later and said, I'm, you know, I think I was too brusque with you. Um, I, I just, I'm not interested in, in that distinction. And that position of mine, I have changed mm -hmm. uh, because I thought that, um, you know, maybe I was sort of presciently understanding that gender was going to be used as this weaponized thing. Um, but as, you know, you and I have come to understand it at this point, I think it is a replacement for the term sex role in other, in other species, where it is um, in animals effectively the behavioral manifestation of how one enacts the sex that they are. And in humans, uh, there is so much lability, there's so much plasticity in terms of, you know, how it is that we, we can act. Uh, that the way that we behaviorally manifest, while there are, you know, more female typical or more male typical things that we might do, uh, you can definitely be, um, act, don't step on the computer, um, you can act uh, more male typical and, and be female, and that doesn't say anything about um, you being born in the wrong body or, you know, anything, right? So um, gender is both real and distinct from sex, uh, and so gender affirming, why do you need to? Just be who you are. That's cool. Be who you are. And then sex affirming. And that is actually what you were born as. And that wasn't um, assigned by anything except the sperm that made you into whom you are when it joined with the egg that also made you into who you are. So I think um, this, this points to a very important uh, tell of the gender affirming crowd. Mm-hmm. They're very interested in affirming gender when it is in conflict with sex and not interested at all in affirming gender when it is consistent with sex, which it almost always is. Yeah. Um, so anyway, whether we deal with this as mm. sex affirming or, geez, you know, as long as we're on the topic of gender affirming, do you realize how often it is that one's gender actually matches what their obstetrician thought it was going to based on uh, rather almost always unambiguous characteristics that imply things about uh, chromosomes and most importantly gamete size mm -hmm. 
right? Mm -hmm. So the fact that they want to affirm it only in those very, very rare cases is indicative that this is a dishonest argument to begin with. Yes, it's true. Absolutely. In 2021, even Trump derangement syndrome people accepted lab leak after Jon Stewart made it into a joke with that explosion of chocolatey goodness near Hershey, Pennsylvania thing that he did on the Colbert show. Um, this is the scramble. Run out the clock talking lab leak. I think that last sentence is um, a directive. Like, we should all run out the clock talking lab leak? Or... I'm not sure. Well, I'm not sure. I do think the fact that there's still no evidence for a natural origin, and I literally mean this, there is no evidence for a natural origin, right? There's lots of stuff that is claimed to be evidence of some kind that does not stand up to scrutiny. There's a ton of evidence in favor of lab leak, which doesn't mean lab leak is true and natural origin is false, but every month we go without finding an intermediate host, the less likely it is that we will ever find one because there's ever less likelihood that it actually exists. So anyway, what we've got is, under any normal circumstances, a slam dunk case. Does that mean that it couldn't be undone? Of course not. You, we could prove that the Earth doesn't go around the sun. It's always open to a falsification. Um, but am I expecting us to find out that the Earth doesn't go around the sun? Nope. I think it's more likely that we will find a natural origin or SARS-CoV-2, then we will find that the Earth does not go around the sun. But I don't think it's likely, right? It, it, <laughs> it's a pretty good... Man, you're just going full nuance on us today. <laughs> well, I guess I am. Um, but anyway, the point is, yeah. this is just, it is an unnatural level of reanimation of this wrong idea, Yeah. right? And yeah. the it is the unnatural level, the two standards, right? No amount of evidence is strong enough for certain people to accept lab leak as a strong possibility and no level of weakness or absence of evidence is enough to put this other hypothesis on, even on pause it just continues to show up yeah right and that's indicative of this not being a scientific discussion yep indeed hello has there ever been a species that decreased its cognitive ability as it evolved? If not, why is it happening to humans? Half <laughs> joking. Um, I believe huh. that we do have a case. And I believe that actually there are probably, if you, if you, I mean, look, we've got all sorts of interesting cases of things like, this is not a cognitive case, but it's sort of a proof of concept of loss of complexity and nuance. There are mites which have had a <laughs> deletion of a developmental stage where they become featureless in one of their stages. I recall that from, from grad school, right? Um, okay, but, right, right. but uh, there's, there's lots of developmental craziness around metamorphosis. You're like, oh, actually, you had complete metamorphosis, now you have incomplete. You had, you know, now you have direct development. And yeah, but, like, okay, so then the case that I would point to as pretty close to a slam dunk okay. are the hobbits of Flores Island, uh, where you have a radical decrease in stature. We have something these like are, a, These are homo floresiensis. Yep. Uh, so congeners of humans, closely related, maybe sister. Probably uh, a descendant of some homo erectus. Yeah. 
that existed on Flores Island until very recently. Which is that is part the timing, of our, descendant of Homo erectus? That's, well, it, that's is, the it proposal. is debated. Okay. And there are those people, um, I call them those who are wrong, <laughs> believe that the diminutive status may be indicative of a pathology, an explanation that makes no sense. But nonetheless... There's nothing in their skeleton that suggests pathology except they're short. It, Right? It's really not. I mean, the yeah. microcephaly, the whole pathology argument just does not stand up to any scrutiny. But And put that aside. Okay. appears to be something like a homo erectus. Um, we have another case, which is, in my opinion, less clear, but also interesting. Demonisi? Uh, Demonisi, yeah. right? Where you also have diminutive status. Uh, diminutive status. Stature. Stature. That's mm -hmm. what I mean. Yeah. Um, but the point is. I you've mean, got... they're dead, so they're, they've got diminished status as well. Yes, especially, yes, especially in the last many millennia. But um, So I, I keep interrupting you, but Flores is an island, a little island in um, Indonesia. Yeah. And what, what we have is a population of descendants of something that we call a human ancestor. We could get into the nuances of this, but uh, something like a Homo erectus came through um, Indonesia, left a population on Flores Island, they became dwarfed, as species often do on islands. The uh, diminutive population hunted diminutive elephants, stegodon elephants the size of a cow, right? So you had people, three-foot-tall people, hunting uh, elephants the size of a cow collectively. Um, but they had a radically decreased cranial volume. And while cranial volume... But not volume, radically reduced for their size, Right, they were proportionally reduced. Right, they were. Uh, yeah. um, so that does not that is not a slam dunk of the question of did they have diminished cognitive capacity because there are some subtleties. You know, you cognitive cranial capacity and cognitive capacity are not synonymous. They okay. ought to be related because, to the extent that selection could decrease the size of a brain and retain all of the cognitive capacity, it would be strongly incentivized to do that because the brain is very expensive and vulnerable. And it's also, it, it poses a terrific risk in childbirth to have such a big head. Right. So both of those things. So they're expensive all kinds to of... grow and run and um, sometimes kills your mom and then you're going to be dead too. Right. So lots of reasons to have a smaller head if we could. So the answer to why selection, why cognitive capacity and um, brain size are not more closely related than they turn out to be is a good one and it's worth exploring. Mm -hmm. But a substantial decrease in the size of a cranium from the Homo erectus standard to the Flores Island standard suggests a decrease in something. We'll get to that something some other day maybe. But, um, but that does suggest that this does happen in circumstances mm -hmm. where the um, payoff for that cognitive capacity is lower. Now, in our circumstance, it's pretty obvious what's going on. The decrease in our cognitive capacity isn't a decrease in, in mental horsepower at a neurological level. It is the chaos of the developmental noise in our hypernovel world where things are changing so quickly that nobody knows what the smart things to continue to believe are. Um, so anyway, yeah, I think it's a very different phenomenon. It's a rapid change, and everybody's confused, and that's making the kids more confused than the adults who were confused to begin with. And uh, so it goes. And so it goes. 
Okay, two more questions and then we'll wrap it up for today. How do we get back to raising, butchering, and selling our critters locally? That's, well, that is going to be a very uh, location-specific answer, I think, because there are, there are places where people are doing this. Um, I think we're going to be forced to it. Those of us who are cognizant of the dangers of novelty and hyper-novelty, you know, to the extent that... Um, the same mechanisms that allowed pharma to not only bypass the normal regulatory mechanism, but get government to mandate mRNA transfection into large numbers of people, they are going to pull the same stunt with respect to um, veterinary medicine and livestock, right? So yep. those of us who are aware of how dangerous that is are certainly going to be incentivized. If you weren't pushed by, um, you know, industrial agriculture to source organic food, the, you know, brave new world of new modifications are going to push a lot of those people who were skeptical into the actually, I actually want a real animal that hasn't been messed with. Um, and how am I going to get that? Mm -hmm. And so, Anyway, I do think we're we're about to see um, we're about to see much more aggressive technology pushed into our food supply, which is going to cause a larger number of people to reject it altogether and embrace traditional foods. And I mean, we we saw we saw back to the farm movements, a movements. Uh, we we saw several versions of back to the farm movements uh, when we were at Evergreen. Uh, there, were, there was an organic farm on campus and there were some both eco-ag programs and food programs that were quite good, you know, really excellent. And um, we had a number of students who became farmers temporarily mostly uh, and, um, and learned a tremendous amount about uh, the food security and soil health and terroir and, and such. And, you know, I think, you know, even, even just Farmers' markets experienced a resurgence in the U.S. after um, becoming something that, sort of, mid twentieth century, uh, a lot of people were sold basically, uh, you know, a, a bill of goods by Procter and Gamble and all the other, you know, these these big food producing outfits that convinced you, that convinced a lot of people, a lot of um, a lot of women buying food for their families that the safest way to feed your family was to have it have been sterilized and prepared by um you know a company far far away and you should buy it in a supermarket rather than ever getting it from you know the grubby hands of a farmer um but you know even by the time you know we were um by the time we were in grad school in the 90s um there was there was much more of a resurgence uh in that regard and i you know i've, I've pointed people there before but um Go, you know, check out, subscribe to Slow Down Farmstead, Slow Down Farmstead on Substack, uh, where Tara Couture writes uh, an extraordinary number of posts about her and her family's journey um, through. At this point, they are um, in, in Ontario, uh, mostly growing only for themselves. Um, but this year um, in, in Canada... Um, they are eating 100% food that they themselves have grown and produced. So 
amazing accomplishment. Amazing, right? And for years they've been doing 85 to 90%, but just like Canada, we're talking like no lemons, <laughs> you know, no, uh, no vanilla, no, you know, no coffee. Um, chocolate, right? <clears throat> this, like, it just there, there's a tremendous amount of things that um, that even those of us who think we're eating consciously and carefully are just you just have no idea. Yeah. Um, and and actually, one of her recent posts, maybe even today, um, talks about some of the journey from you know having been buying from people who are raising their own cows and buying half a cow and you know having a chest freezer to put it in. You know, this is something that that we've we've been doing for a long time, um, but you know, creating those networks of um, with people who uh, who share your values and see the same things that you do and therefore you can and and you know maybe you're not the person who's growing the sheep or the cows or maybe you are uh and you need to earn money to do other things in your life or you have you are doing other things in your life and you're not going to be growing them but you have the money to spend on the excellent quality meat like find those people and make those connections and um and that that will be one of the ways that we we have a chance of emerging from this intact. Yep. The tragedy, of course, is that uh, to the extent that there is a dawning awareness of what's good for you and what isn't, it is, of course, the people with more resources that have access to the good food and right. Um, right. will make it last to yeah. the people who are already uh, at a disadvantage. Yeah. I mean, food <laughs> food desert is a an overly simplistic description. Um you know, fixing, fixing the food desert problem, uh, would largely mean bringing in, you know, the ability to find those, those processed foods that all also aren't very good for you. Yeah. Um, and you know, yeah, we're a long way from, from getting real, honest, amazing food to everyone who would choose to be eating it. Okay. One last question. How might I get my mother to peek inside my media bubble? She won't discuss the trans Michigas. That's how I pronounce it, right? Yeah, that is how you pronounce it. She won't discuss the trans Michigas with me and seems at least partially race woke. Yeah, that's a tough question. Uh, I've been talking to multiple people about the possibility that next gen social media would inherently involve the ability to peer through anybody else's eyes, mm. right? How useful would it be if you could click a button and you could see the feed as if you were somebody with whom you don't get along, right? Mm -hmm. um, it obviously doesn't really exist now. I think there's far too little emphasis on understanding even what the algorithms are that are causing us to derange, right? You, there ought to be an obsession with reverse engineering those algorithms so that you can correct for them. And there's very little attention paid. People mm -hmm. are aware of the algorithms, but they have so far not attempted to figure out how to unmake them. Yeah. Um, but anyway, uh, maybe, maybe Elon Musk will build this into Twitter so that we can look through each other's eyes. And I believe that that would actually bring us much closer together. But that's a long ways away. And so how to help an individual share some of what he or she is seeing um, to begin to deprogram, that's maybe not the right word, but 
um, to, to help awaken the mom to, uh, to some of what he's saying. Um, I don't, I don't think we can do this generically. I think, um, we don't know, all we know about you is that you're paying enough attention to have written us a question and to have used the word Mishagas here. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, um, you know, you know who you are and what your relationship with your mother is and what, and who she is more than, um, you know, doesn't want to talk trans and maybe partially race woke. You also have a, have some sense of where she is getting her media feeds and also, you know, why she might be, uh, resistant. You know, does she have a group of friends, uh, with whom she will not be able to hang out anymore if she starts thinking different things? And is, are those, is that group of friends the thing that is the most important thing in her life? In which case it's going to be really, really hard. Uh, if she is resistant because, uh, you know, we don't think that way in this family. And you say, well, you know, I do. And um, actually this is to me consistent with um, the way I've always thought. And I think that we are being told uh, that this new way of thinking is, you know, fill in the blank, liberal, um, you know, compassionate, whatever. And I think it's actually the opposite. And here's why. Um, then, you know, that, that I feel like you do have a chance of, of conveying some of what you see as the reality. Um, but if there's a social barrier, it's much harder. Yeah. Although it does suggest a partial answer may or may not work in your case, but the thing that people fear is being outed to those, you know, presumably to those in their world who will be least tolerant of it. Mm-hmm. And to the extent that, you know, your mom should be prioritizing her relationship with you, but it may be that you're tolerant enough that you'll put up with the Michigas and her friends won't put up with reality. Mm-hmm. Um, so one thing you might do is figure out how to offer safety that you and your mom can talk about reality and that it doesn't, result in her being outed as a hypocrite to people whose viewpoint she has prioritized. Mm, That's good. All right. We've arrived. We will be back next week. In the meantime, please uh, subscribe, like, share. Share with people who you think will appreciate it. Consider sharing with people that you're not sure will and see what happens. Um, it's it's the way that we start conversations is by um, saying things or sharing things that we're not positive in advance are going to be well received and seeing what happens and it's surprising often uh, how, how well things are received when we weren't expecting it so until we see you next time which will be same time same place next week uh, be good to the ones you love eat good food and get outside be well everyone <laughs>